What is intelligence? For some artificial intelligence researchers, it may be quite possible to create what would be an intelligent machine uh, in a box, something that doesn't necessarily have a body but has a mind, maybe a mind more powerful than that of humans at some point in the future, um, without necessarily having a physical embodiment in some way, shape, or form. There's other folks on the other side of the camp that are of the belief that uh, genuine intelligence involves an interaction in a broader sense with the real world, and that even speech recognition in, in the real world between human beings involves looking at gestures, looking at facial expressions, and taking in more information, maybe even having a visceral sense of, of what someone, someone is saying outside of uh, just letter for letter and word for word um, what is coming out as that one particular data stream. Uh, our guest in this episode of the Tech Emergence podcast is of the belief that intelligence may involve a bit more uh, than simply a mental function, um, but may involve some kind of physical embodiment or uh, the capacity to detect multiple senses rather than simply run its own individual program or focus in maybe arbitrarily or too specifically narrow domains. Uh, Vincent Mueller uh, is a professor uh, in Greece who focuses specifically on what he calls cognitive systems as an approach uh, for artificial intelligence. Uh, much of his work focuses specifically on that particular space. And in this episode, he articulates what cognitive systems means and implies, how it's different from what might be called, or what he's referring to in this episode as classical AI, and what cognitive systems might permit or allow for in the future if the field is developed. So without further ado, we'll move along. So Vincent, before getting a little bit into the, the past and future of, of this field of, of cognitive systems, I'm interested just for the, the understanding of the folks at home and even myself, what to you or, or in your field makes a system cognitive? What, what, how, what are we referring to there? Um, I think cognitive systems is a term that's evolved from the term artificial intelligence, uh, particularly with people who wanted to uh, diverge themselves from classical artificial intelligence, which had developed into a field which seemed to have very little to do with natural cognition, that is, with mm. how intelligence works in humans and animals. Yeah. And so some people thought we should have a new term that we would use for systems that we think are intelligent uh, in a suitable way, and that they're intelligent in a way that we recognize as being similar to the way that natural systems are intelligent. Uh, and so that we could have this two-way interaction. That is, we can learn from the natural systems how to make technical systems, and we can learn from the technical systems how the natural system actually functions. So, for example, whether our theory is correct, we can test it in the technical system by making a system that has these properties. Got it. Um, and so um, one result of this is that we put a lot more emphasis on the role of the body in the intelligence than classical AI would do, and we generally think of intelligence in broader terms than, uh, let's say, intelligent thinking. So intelligence also is the ability that allows you to find your way home, uh, to locate and grasp a cup, um, and to do all these things that we do in everyday life yeah. that uh, make up uh, human intelligent behavior. So. A lot of the interaction on the technical side is therefore also with robotics, unlike AI, which traditionally at least has ignored these merely physical 
aspects of things. So we, we think that, that natural systems have some properties that are very interesting for technical systems, particularly that they're uh, robust uh, in, in certain environments. If you if the environment isn't exactly the way you predicted it, the system will still work yes, more yes. or less. Yeah. Uh, and, and a classical AI system is really bad at that. It will typically try to predict exactly the way the world is going to be and then roll out uh, a response to that. Interesting. And, and just to, to clarify your own notion as to what we're referring to in this conversation as classical artificial intelligence, what might be an example thereof, which is sort of, again, what you're referring to is aiming to, it sounds like to some degree, model what thinking and actual intelligence is by looking at it as opposed to maybe just trying to do something with machines. Um, when you refer to classical AI that maybe isn't uh, up your alley when it comes to cognitive systems, what would be an example thereof that would still be called AI, but more in the classical sense where we wouldn't recognize it as smart or, or robust in, in the kind of flexible way you were talking about? Classical AI would be pretty much all the AI up to uh, the 1990s or so. And essentially the understanding of classical AI is that Intelligence is due to computational symbol manipulation. This is the underlying mechanism that all intelligence is based on. And so you try to reproduce what an intelligent agent does by essentially imagining somebody who's thinking about what to do next. And so he says, I, in order to get there, I have to open the door. In order to open the door, I have to first locate the door and grab the handle, press it down, pull it, and, and all that. I make a, essentially the system is supposed to be sense, plan, act. So I sense the environment, I make a model of it, I make a plan, uh, what I'm going to do, and then I carry out the yeah. plan, and I act. Uh, there are all sorts of, you know, classical systems that are examples of that kind of uh, approach. And it's still a, an approach that... Uh, has a significant impact in, in present-day AI. There are some significant variations on that. In particular, there is a lot more learning in AI than there used to be. And there are a lot stronger probabilistic approaches, that is, approaches that don't uh, assume that you know exactly what the world in front of yes. you is like. Because yep. you typically don't get that information from your sensory input, yep. but only allocate a certain probability to certain states in the environment and act on them. On that, and, and of course, this is what we presume that humans do to some degree. Some people think that that is what humans do. Yeah, and we we don't know. It's tough to tough to think about our own thinking. I really really wish that was a lot easier. Um, but uh, but something that you, that some humans do when they're consciously thinking about solving a problem. Yep, yep. Um, I, I suppose not all humans. We we might say that not all humans might be entirely capable thereof. Um, no. With that being said, you had mentioned. Classical AI might be a big bucket that we could put most examples of artificial intelligence before a certain time frame. You you'd mentioned the 90s. In terms of the progress in cognitive systems in the last 20 and, and maybe in your case even, or t 10 years or even in your case maybe 20, as you'd mentioned, up until the 90s, um, where has the headway been made? Um, what has sort of stepped us beyond a... A complete model of how things work and uh, drop the pachinko ball down at the top and it hits all the sides and then it lands at the bottom and we win. Um, what is what is sort of expanded artificial intelligence to some semblance of learning, some semblance of cognition in the way that you guys had or that, that, that you, you had articulated it? Um, 
where have we been able to push forward in, in that road? Uh, well, the, the short answer is uh, uh, we haven't done much. I mean, in the sense that the the progress that we have made in AI in, in this time frame, and there definitely is progress in AI, um, is to a very large extent uh, progress due to more efficient algorithms and faster machinery. Yep. So we, we still, to a large extent, do exactly the same thing as people used to do then, but we just have much, much better machinery, so we can pull off a lot more things than we could at the time. Now, having said that, uh, there are techniques that are now fairly common and which weren't common, so common at the time. Machine learning is clearly one of them. Um, and I would say any kind of embodied cognitive science methods are also one of them. But the latter, for example, are largely theoretical items. There is very, relatively little actual you know, show work you can show that actually uses these techniques very sufficiently. So hmm. um, the opinions that I can see are divergent on these matters. Some people say uh, the trajectory that we're on is, is beautiful and we've made enormous progress in the past couple of decades. Yeah. And so things are just going to go on like that. And uh, some people, at least when the funders are not listening, are saying, oh, we know that this isn't really going to go anywhere. So um, <clears throat> we either keep plodding ahead and it's going to be okay, uh, or we do something totally different. Hmm. So some people believe that cognitive systems as an approach to developing more robust or capable machine intelligence may be a dead end of sorts? No, it may be something that we need to do, which is, however, going to be m much different from what we've done so far. Huh, huh, okay. So, so there are people who think that essentially AI plus learning and a bit of probabilistic technology is the way to go and it's going to be successful. Um, and I think the judgment on that is largely out. I mean, we what we used to say was, oh, that's not going to work, guys, because we, we just don't have the possibility to look at all the data and and pre-program all the possibilities and so on. Yes. Um, now, it, it turns out that maybe that was wrong. So it uh, it might be that, that a system like the Google car uh, can actually do that. I mean, the Google car is not a very intelligent car, but <clears throat> it knows the course it's going on really well. Yep. Uh, and it knows what can happen in this course, which it's essentially it's going on the same course in their test drives. It sort of goes around the same one usually. Yep. Um, and so what they do is that they very efficiently try to program into the system the possible things that can happen when you are driving. Uh, and what we used to think is that can't be a solution because you can have a drug running across the street, but it could also be a cat. It could be a little... Boy, yeah, un unlimited possibilities, right? That's the, right. Uh, the and idea. So there's really no end to what else there could be. But of course, that's not quite true because, of course, uh, there is an end to the kinds of things that you would usually expect to happen on a road. And if you make a database which is large enough to contain this kind of stuff, and of course, you have sensory systems that actually detect that, you know, there's a dog in front of you as opposed to a shadow or yep, yep. Uh, a cloud or nothing. Um, 
then it looks like it might well be that you can actually program the system uh, efficiently so that it can handle an environment of a certain given complexity. And that might actually be enough for certain or for a relatively large proportion of what drivers usually do. So if you if you think of driving um, as a problem, for example, you, you can see that driving on a motorway uh, is a relatively easy task, particularly in Europe, because you're not supposed to overtake on the right. Yep. And essentially, you follow the car in front of you and sort of go with the flow. Right? And you don't really expect anything. A motorway, potholes, people overtaking, you you make a couple of guesses about the intentions of other drivers and that's not trivial, uh, but roughly it's relatively easy. If you compare that to, I don't know, driving in a congested downtown Thessaloniki, uh, things are a lot more complex in the latter case, right? But it might well be that you can make a driving system that's sufficiently sophisticated to handle the first kind of cases. Uh, in a well, relatively well-structured environment, and that that's going to be okay. After all, the system isn't supposed to um, to become much better than human drivers, and human drivers don't aren't so good anyway. Yeah. So uh, uh, it it seems to me that that kind of a system, which of course is going to be still a very system, right, it will not be able to do anything other than driving. Yep, that would be it. Um, that kind of a system. Uh, I think uh, basically is possible with the technologies that we have would, now. Would we, would Which, we, of course, is the reason why industry is now pouring money into this. Thing, oh, right? because yeah, they, for sure. Because obviously they think that uh, that there is a horizon um, of, of commercial uh, application. Making a product out of it. Yep, yeah, commercial application. Um, so, and, and that would be. It's. I mean, that sounds a bit like if we're programming everything in there. Um, it sounds a quite uh, expert system-ish, quite uh, what you might have called classical artificial intelligence-ish, at least from, from earshot here, you know, um, yes. plugging in essentially big enough database when X then Y, when X then Y, seems impossible to get all those, those permutations, but there's a reasonable number of them that are going to happen in, you know, our physical world. And if we can build a big enough database, the old school expert system scaled up may actually cut the mustard in terms of an, an application of artificial intelligence uh, in, in the case of cars may be much faster than a cognitive system could be built to do the same thing. Is this what you're saying? Yes. I, I'm, I'm not sure what the X and Y kind of thing. I, mean, the, I think the way you should think of it is more like the kind of thing that a human can do subconsciously. So uh, when you when you do something quite a lot, I don't know, you play tennis, say. Yes, yes. Right? You, you, you don't consciously think of, oh, the ball is coming this way, it's bouncing now, it's going to be bouncing that high, so I have to run, run there and so on. And you don't do all of those things, right? That's, if, you, if you're an experienced tennis player, unlike me, uh, all that <laughs> comes automatically. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is the kind of thing that, that, that I have in mind. So I think that a system will be able to develop routines, so to speak, with the appropriate adjustments, in our case, the trajectory of the ball coming towards you, that is essentially the movement of the other player that gives you this information, um, that you can respond accordingly. And that's going to be roughly okay. And, and yes, I think that is, broadly speaking, a classical AI approach. So I think that's exactly what I'm, what I'm suggesting. I think this kind of approach is quite likely to be successful. 
in certain certain applications, uh, relatively limited areas. But I, when I say relatively limited, I still mean real life. Uh, yeah. Outside the security cage of the industry ro industrial robot. Yep. Or or outside of the 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 very controlled environment of a chessboard, for example. Um, yes, indeed. Yep. Yeah. So so this is this is what you're referring to. Now, in terms of the kinds of problems, uh, we could call them problems. The kinds of opportunities, the kinds of problems that cognitive systems may in fact be called for, and and maybe seem uh, quite evidently called for as compared to a expert system or classical artificial intelligence set up as, as we've articulated that term today. Um, where where do you see the greatest possibility for cognitive systems? Of course, this is where a lot of your own work uh, is is honed uh, in on, is, is sort of where, where cognitive systems could, could better the world. Where might classical AI not get the job done, um, where cognitive systems might be able to, to pick things up? I, I think this uh, the, this there, there are broadly two things. I think the first thing is this is the flexibility of, of a system. So the system is should be able to uh, adjust to the environment to be slightly different from the way it was supposed to be. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is the integration of different sorts of information. So uh, to give you an example, people have been working on speech recognition for quite some time. Yes. Um, and speech recognition is doing pretty well. But there is a trajectory of the of the of the success curve, so to speak, that is flattening. Huh, okay. So it's it's getting better, but it's not getting any significantly better anymore. And the reason is, and as, this essentially means that speech recognition isn't really so good in noisy environments. Uh, yeah. You know, people with slightly funny accents, uh, these kind of things. So. Um, not so good in that is in comparison to human speech recognition, right? So the the trajectory, the direction some people are taking this research then is to say, okay, well maybe we should add some information to the system as opposed to just analyzing more sound files. Maybe we should give it a video file, right? Hmm. So if you have to try and understand a hu human speech, as we all know from talking on the phone, if you have video or the person is in front of you, uh, it's a lot easier. Yeah, in a, foreign, in a foreign language, for example, that you don't speak particularly well, uh, talking on the phone is is really a challenge, right? Whereas if you're interacting with the person in front of you, you get a lot more information, uh, and if you're in the environment with that person, you get even more information, right? So you can see the person is handling you a cup, handing you a cup, and say, or holding a cup in front of you, and says, "Do you want a cup of tea?" And you you might get what they want. Yeah, because yeah. Because of the fact that they are holding a cup. Yes, 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 yes. Because they're from Leeds, they'll say cup of tea. But, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you'll get that given the environment. So maybe the the way to improve on the system would then not be to make more sophisticated sound analysis, but to get more information into making a sense to make that task more difficult. Right? That is That is adding more information about people and, yeah. and their intentions and and so on and that would actually then help the, uh, the system to become understood become okay that's a good tangible example did you have another thing you want to go into right away um, no I think okay I okay, got it I, I was gonna, I was gonna yeah. delve into that just a bit to, to um, explore that notion um, there's with in, in that particular example we're talking about adding 
more contextual uh, information into this mix of discerning language and meaning and, and what it implies and, and, uh, and, and all of that. Um, is it to say that although a Google I, car... I, I make a footnote there. Yes, go for it. it. The, the discern, what the discerning that, that um, speech recognition people do, now maybe that's wrong, but that is what, what they typically do is that they call that problem speech to text. So if they can write down the text, type it down, so to speak, then, they, then their job is done. Okay? So that's one step or a couple of steps before the level that you talked about that is understanding the meaning of those words ah, yeah. and understanding the intentions of the speaker with the, in this particular context with these words. Okay, got it, got it. We've, right? we, I, I have um, interviewed some folks in the speaker recognition domain uh, who do consider those to be legitimate speak, speech recognition problems, but maybe they're speaking, right. or maybe speech recognition we can, we, we can think of or talk about here as speech to text, see you later. Um, and and the, the deeper problems are those understanding, et cetera, as, as you had articulated there. Um, and so with that being said, uh, that, that understanding, those implications, those intentions, is it, is it to say, although a Google car might be able to, to do pretty well on the highway, and then we might be able to have it do pretty well in New York City, um, or San Francisco or, or somewhere else in the world, is it to say that that same old school approach, at least in the classical analogy we've used, um, might not do the job of all of that meaning and understanding in text? In other words, is there, is there a reason why it would seem somewhat blatantly obvious that classical will not cut it when it comes to that kind of a problem in a cognitive system would be necessary. Is, is, uh, what is the reason? I, I, th I think the, the reason is that, that uh, language is, is a lot more complicated than driving. Uh, essentially, if you want to understand language fully, you have to understand fully what humans are doing and what they're about. And you don't need to do that in order to drive efficiently. Not necessarily, like, no. You essentially, don't. You, you might even take the humans entirely out of the loop in the driving area. I mean, that's it. the dream of some people is that you just don't have any humans in the, yeah. on the street anymore. Probably safe. Driving anyway. Yeah. And that would mean then that the problem of interacting with other cars would be a totally different problem. You don't need to understand the intentions of human drivers anymore. You don't need to look where they're looking, for example, or whether they have seen you. Right? I mean, if you cross the street, one typical thing that you do is you check the driver to see whether they have seen you. Yep. And and, and then walk across the street. If you go to England, you might look at the wrong person because the driver is on the other side of the car. <laughs> yeah, I probably would. <laughs> and 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 you might you know get into trouble for that purpose. If you <laughs> for that reason, if you have a, a a driverless car with another driverless car, then you don't need to do that thing because they, they can detect very easily inject uh, uh, detect each other's uh, directions and they can exchange information on where they're planning on going. Yeah. Right? And so it's quite easy to make sure they don't uh, crash, for example. Um, so uh, the other example about language I was going to refer to, and then I dropped the idea, was translation. Hmm. So this is another area where uh, a surprisingly big project progress has been made in a way that people hadn't thought of, at least in, in the old days. People used to think of translation in the old ways. Okay, what do you do when you translate? 
uh, I used to do this for a job. So what do you do? You read the text, you try to understand what they say, and then you make a text which says what they wanted to say in a different language. Conveying meaning. Right. And so you, the first thing is you, you understand what they want to say or their, the meaning of what they're, what they're saying, as you call it, and then you try to say it and preferably also say it in the way they would have said it if they would have said it in yeah. German or some other language. So um, people who were trying to work on these kind of things were trying to say, oh, this is really complicated. We need, uh, we need all sorts of uh, levels of uh, linguistic analysis, uh, morphology and syntax and, and also semantics. And essentially, you need to understand what humans, what humans do. And that's also one reason why translation is so difficult, because if you don't understand what it is that you are translating, if you have two experts on neuroscience talking to each other and you don't know nothing about neuroscience, you can't translate yeah. what they say because you will not understand what they're doing. So Google has shown that that is to a significant extent wrong. Hmm. We, they, so the way they do the translation is that they have a, a huge chunk of, a huge amount of texts that are already translated. So, uh, and given that that's already been done, they essentially use that, well, with a lot more sophisticated programming, of course, behind that is not, a, not at all a trivial enterprise, in order to translate new text. By, so by cor correlating the likelihood of one word being next to another, one word standing for another in a certain context, etc. Yeah, cor I think it works essentially on sentence level. But I mean, you, you can you can see that in a simple way. If some, if I say uh, uh, Plutarch was a great historian, and somebody <laughs> else has already said uh, that uh, Rita was a great historian. And, and this has been translated, then it's easy to translate the other sentence too. Yes. You see, right? So that's a simple case. Obviously, it's not going to be that simple usually. But then you start seeing that there are certain kinds of texts. There are certain, let's say, business letters that always have the same kind of thing that people say. And so if you know how to write that kind of thing, then you can translate that kind of thing too. So you don't, you can make a system that's essentially a very sophisticated database matching system. And the system understands Zippo of what it does. Huh. Yeah, sense absolutely nothing. So this is not cognitive in the sense to which no. you might be working towards it someday. This no, is it's this not is, at all. Yeah, cognitive, but it might work. Yeah, and it does work to a significant extent. It does. But it yeah. is a similar phenomenon to the speech recognition system that it hits a certain ceiling. You see, where yeah. uh, if things get a little bit more sophisticated, then you notice that the system is starting to make what looks like really stupid mistakes or come up with some absurd uh, examples because, of course, it doesn't understand what you're trying to say. Yeah. Right? And so, which is, of course, what you do when uh, you listen to, say, to me speaking right now is that you're trying to uh, gather the intentions that I have when I say what I say. Yeah. Right? And so this requires a certain amount of understanding that we share, and so that's why we can pull that off. Um, now, this, the system, the Google system, doesn't have that. And so people used to think, oh, therefore it can't translate. And that turned out to be false. Yeah, interesting. Right. So this is another example, as you'd mentioned with the car, where you know, with the vehicles, we may not need 
thinking in the sense that we know it in order to have roads without people on them, safe roads without people on them. Um, similarly, for at least a certain level of translation, um, that, that a real understanding, like you had mentioned, is not necessarily um, required. I'm curious, and I'll have this as our last question. I realize we're coming up if on I time. I may say something on, on that. Yes, go for given it. Given that that's the case, so given that these systems might be working without having uh, much of a cognitive component to them, to them, the fact that there is progress in this direction then says absolutely nothing about whether we actually have progress towards something like genuinely intelligent systems. Yeah, yeah. So it, it would be it would be progress in a practical sense, but mm -hmm. maybe not progress in the actual replication of intelligence. So it would be a monetizable, a, a clearly a useful sure. uh, facet and application of technology, but this may not be proving the point of us building something smart. It would be building something that can do something like what smart things do, but in, in the sense of, you know, the the Chinese room or whatever the, the other various and sundry analogies, analogies are where this is not smart stuff thinking. This is a process that replicates what smart is thanks to big databases. Um, as yes, though, though no. we, we need to keep in mind that it is perfectly possible that there might be systems that do, that are, as you say that, call that smart stuff thinking without thinking in the way you and me think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. Right? There might be a totally different that, that pulls out of yep, and that's it, still an open possibility. It completely open possibility. And in fact, although it's likely that uh, some of the initial intelligences, uh, assuming that we eventually do build something that maybe some people agree to be intelligent, um, some of the initial intelligences may be modeled off of what we're studying now in the brain and aiming to replicate. There's some laboratories aiming to replicate in, in the brain, but I, I think it's it's quite reasonable that there's entire realms of sentient working and cognitive working that have nothing to do with any of the ways that we are set up. Um, and, and I think that we're going to start with what we know, but I, I'm, I'm actually of the supposition that hopefully at some point within my, my lifetime and, and hopefully for the better, uh, those, some of those discoveries are made, but yes, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to open up that uh, ball of abstraction and I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, as, as a closing, as a closing note, um, I'm curious in, in your perspective, Vincent, uh, as, as to where these cognitive systems are going now, there, there's been some degree of progress, as you had mentioned, you know, up until the nineties, maybe not so much. Um, now there's been some degree of progress. In the coming decade, what do you think are exciting possibilities that might be viable for um, cognitive systems in, in, in the way that you're referring to it here? Systems that uh, are robust and flexible in the sense that a real intelligence is, not in the sense that a very big set of rules could eventually uh, express what appears to be intelligence, but, but in, in the sense of probabilities and, and decision-making, maybe in a way like little sentient animals do, what, what might be viable, you know, a decade out uh, in, in terms of progress there that, that you're excited about? I find that really hard to say because the, we, we've seen the phenomenon quite often that we thought some trajectory was going really well and then it ended up on hitting some kind of wall. Yeah. Um, and what I, what I see is uh, I can see a lot of areas where there are sort of pockets of resistance, as it were, where you can make 
very successful systems that do relatively specific things relatively well. And yeah. I expect that there are going to be a lot more of these systems and there will be a lot more physical systems of that sort, even though physical systems, that is robotics involving systems, are always a lot harder than other systems. Yeah. Um, so I expect more progress in the other areas, but mm. I expect significant progress in the robotics area, which is mm. uh, growing very, very fast. Um, I do not really see any significant progress at this point towards something that is uh, that I would call intelligence in any more serious sense, in the sense of an integrated system where that is sort of all working together and combined yeah. as a common goal. That is not something that I see happening. That seems out, in, outside in the, of our In the framework, in the time frame that you that you talked about. So okay, the it. next 10 years, in any case, is a relatively short framework if you talk about products. Yeah. Right? If you're talking about, because, I mean, the products that come out in five years are basically sold in research terms now. Yep. Um, so, so, but even if we talk about it in research terms, yep. I, I expect that, that the, the progress will be of a relatively limited kind despite the fact that the pros of the funding organizations that one sees is uh, suggesting a lot more. And out of curiosity, and and by the way, I completely am wary of the risk of prognosticating. I'm, I'm, I would not, uh, I would not peg you to a date and say that you bet your life on it in any way, in any shape or in any form, as you had said, um, you know, there's been plenty of very promising trajectories that have in fact, uh, not lived up to said promise, either because there was no promise to be had or because we couldn't figure out how to make promise out of them, although they seem so promising. Um, it, you had mentioned uh, 10 years, too short, even in, in a laboratory sense, to be replicating a kind of you know, intelligence in the way that, that we're talking about, integrated, you would use the, the term. Um, this is, of course, still what you're working on. So I would presume that if you saw it as a complete dead end, you would not be running an organization interested in that in that domain. In terms of what the reasonable hopes would be for, for work like, like yours and an application development therein, um, you know, 10 years having self-aware robots walking around making a sandwich as well, that's, that's, that's not going to be happening. Um, but, but in terms of what the hope might be, just, just to get an understanding of what you're aiming to ultimately work towards and when you might think it might happen, um, what, what is the eventual hope and what kind of longer time frame? Okay, so two things. First, uh, I think it's a perfectly viable research field even if it never gets to the stage that mm. you talked about, right? Um, Second, we, uh, Nick Bostrom and I did uh, some research on that, and we asked uh, hundreds of researchers in the field when they thought superintelligence might emerge. Ah. And, and when, um, when the 50% probability point would be passed. Yep. And the, the estimates were, the median estimates were around 2040, 50, uh, which is pretty soon. Yep. Right. So that was good. Good for Nick's book because he wanted, of course, to say that the superintelligence is a, a thing that we should worry about now. Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, so my own view is that uh, I think it's going to take rather longer than that, um, but I still think that it is rather likely that it will happen at some point. So uh, there is no uh, metaphysical reason, so to speak, to believe that the particular biological beings that we are are such a super special thing that we could not possibly ever make a technical system has properties yeah, like that. Yeah. Uh, 
So given this rather general assumption, uh, it seems to me that it's likely that we will do that at some point. Um, I just don't really see that we are at the right on, on the right track at this point of being able to predict success in any reasonable that we can no, yeah. oversee. Crystal crystal uh, balls. That is top. basically, you know, the, the next couple of decades is this kind of a time frame, yeah. right? You know, you can sort of have an idea what might happen in 10, 20, 30, 40 either years, but then after, I would say that it's sort of... It, Com completely. It's in the mist, yeah, right? completely so, in the mist. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's why I'm saying I'm, I'm rather more pessimistic about this than... Uh, a lot of other people that, that I talk to. Well, I'll say this much. Um, number one, for the folks that are interested in that particular poll, uh, uh, Vincent had, had worked with uh, Bostrom at, at the Future of Humanity Institute as a fellow for a little bit there. Um, if, if anybody wants to go home and Google Bostrom AI poll, P-O-L-L, -L, it's, it's the first or second listing is, is this exact study to which Vincent is, is referring. Quite interesting. I, I will, as a closing note, Vincent, I will cross my fingers at least on one level, that you're right, because I happen to think that um, not only is 30 years to, to superintelligence potentially dangerous, but I, I think 30 years isn't enough to, uh, to wake folks up and really think and talk about how the heck that's going to go down and how, how we should do that if we should at all. So mm -hmm. I'll, 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 I'll hope that you're more right than, uh, than the median is in that particular case. That's, that's what I'll hope. And, and Vincent, I, 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 I yeah, think go ahead. that uh, even if Nick doesn't say much about this, I think he hopes that too. Yes, yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, and, and he's also only very moderately very moderately optimistic about our ability to control this development. Yep, yep. And I think the folks that think about it seriously are actually in that same camp. I think that uh, I, I find the, the, the further reaches of optimism there to, to be, you know, tough, tough to swallow. Hopefully, hopefully we'll have some optimists and I, I hope that that'll you know, potentially set us on a better trajectory if we're not all doomsayers, but we got to look at those possibilities. And, and obviously Nick is in that camp as well. Vincent, I know we went a little bit over time. I sincerely appreciate you being able to share your thoughts with us here on Tech Emergence today. Thank you. Well, that wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence podcast. And thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives and top researchers and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks as always for tuning in and I'll catch you next week.